Startup exits are the most sought after events in Silicon Valley, but very few people get to experience them. Welcome to the Startup Exits podcast, where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it all went down. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. Hey, everybody, this is your host, Andrew Vasilik, and you're listening to Startup Exits where we chat with founders that started, ran, and sold a tech company to learn about how it actually all went down. Uh, Today, I'm joined by the founder of SendGrid, Tim Jenkins. Welcome to the show, Tim. Thank you. So for those of you that live under a rock, SendGrid is the world's number one email sending platform. You guys send as many emails as there are tweets per day. If you take half of all of the world's email addresses, they have received an email sent by SendGrid in the last year alone. So lots and lots of emails. The company went public in 2017 and is now being acquired by Twilio for $3 billion. Uh, You guys went through Techstars, uh, which has obviously worked out very well for you. But my first question to you is not related to Techstars. It's actually related to another accelerator. There was an interview between Paul Graham, who is the founder of Y Combinator, and Jason Calacanis. And Jason asked Paul if there was any company that Y Combinator rejected that they regret. And Paul didn't mention any names, but he did mention a company that applied, got rejected, uh, received a very, very low score by one of, the fa- one of the partners of Y Combinator and was labeled as a spam company. That company then went to another accelerator and became a huge hit. So my first question to you is, did you guys ever apply to Y Combinator? Uh, yes, we did apply to Y Combinator and Techstars at the same time. And uh, we were rejected by Y Combinator. So you guys were the one that got away. Uh, but nonetheless, I think Techstars has worked out pretty well for you guys. Yeah, been very happy with uh, what Techstars has done for us. Yeah, and I think uh, the value kind of goes both ways in the sense that uh, you guys were the first public company uh, that came out of Techstars and is just regarded as uh, one of the largest successes that ever came out of the program. Uh, But when you guys first came to Techstars, you were not known as SendGrid. Uh, You were known as smtpapi.com. Who came up with his name? Uh, that was Isaac. It uh, rolls right off the tongue, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, I think you guys won the the geekiest name uh, that came out of Techstars. Is that is that right? <laughs> yeah, it uh, it definitely it, it was nerdy enough that people knew what we were doing, but also so nerdy that we were mocked relentlessly for the first week of Techstars until we changed it. So you guys changed the name pretty quickly, and what also happened very quickly for you guys is you reached product market fit very early on. And that's a, just a very big milestone to hit for any startup. Um, do you feel like the fact that you guys hit product market fit so early uh, had anything to do with the fact that you guys, when you started SendGrid, you were solving a problem that you guys had? So uh, in other words, you were potentially customers of your own product. Therefore, you knew the needs of the customers better and you, uh, you could hit the, the product market fit sooner. Is that kind of the way that it went down? I think it definitely helps the fact that that we as developers know what developers need and kind of think that way. I, I think that it really helped along with the fact that a lot of times people try and create companies that fill a portion of a need that some other competitor doesn't fill versus we were really filling an industry that didn't exist. And I think that it really helped with with initial adoption where people were like, well, we're willing to give this a try because it fits 80 percent of what we need. And we work on the, uh, the rest as time goes on. And I think product market fit is one of those things that sort of means different things to different people and different companies. Uh, what would you say product market fit means to you? It's where the, the product that you're developing 
uh, fills the needs of the the market that you're trying to adopt have adopted. And how would you gauge that? Like, uh, what would you like? Is it, was there a point in Sangret's history where you guys had this sort of eureka moment where you knew that you hit product market fit? Oh man, I mean, just launch day. Really, we uh, we had done demo day there at at TechStars, and we're like, okay, yeah, we're going out and we're going to celebrate tonight. We're going to go drink some beers. We're going to go have fun. Instead, the the TechCrunch article hit about our company existing, and we spent the night provisioning accounts and taking support chats and uh, basically working. The um, the just need that the industry had at the time that we launched was so big that it uh, it was really overwhelming. And did you guys raise on demo day? We didn't raise, but we got a term sheet shortly after that, and uh, I, I think we definitely talked to the investors that gave us the t- the term sheet there at demo day. So there was a point in the early days of the company where you guys had an acquisition offer uh, for somewhere north of ten million, and at the same time, you guys also had uh, an investment offer from a very well-respected uh, VC, uh, the Foundry Group, and you guys had to take one or the other. Ultimately, you decided to take the investment from Foundry Group and not to sell. Um, what stage was that investment at? That was that was pretty early on. It was like March of two thousand ten. And uh, yeah, we had the, basically they came with the, the offer for uh, funding and that kind of prompted a buyout offer from another company that was, was talking about, that was interested in acquiring us. And we were originally kind of like, yeah, I'll take the money and run. But fortunately for us, Mark Solon from our board from Highway 12 was like, you know, guys, You've got a lot of potential. We invested in you because we believe in you in the long term. Lots of people believe in you in the long term, believe in yourselves. And I'm very, very glad that we listened to him. And was that the same round where the founder of Techstars, David Cohen, came in at as well? Uh, I think that that was in the December round. It was, we called it Series A1 or something like that. I don't know what it would be nowadays. It's not quite. We raised like 700K or something, so it's not quite the seed round. But I think that, that Bullet Time invested in that first round. I'm pretty sure that the the Foundry round, Foundry was the only real investor and everyone else just put in a pro rata. So both of your co-founders, Isaac and Jose, as well as yourself, are all very highly technical people. Uh, but ultimately, you were the one that became the CTO and you stayed in that position all the way uh, up until a couple months after the IPO. In your opinion, what makes a great CTO? I think that it's really understanding uh, tech and the industry and kind of where things are going. The The job of the CTO is really to steer the, the technical direction of the, the company and also ideally help steer the technical direction of the, the community that you're in. And it's really just understanding the, the trends. What are the things that are going to be beneficial? What's the stuff that's bull and going to drag people down? And how about the managerial side of things? Yeah, I sucked at that. <laughs> the, uh, the managerial side, it's really about kind of knowing where you're at and figuring it out in the company that you're at. I don't think that there's, uh, it's, a, it's such a broad role that it's something that can work for where you are and not necessarily be pigeonholed into what somebody else has done. So besides reaching product market fit very early on and having insanely fast growth, as, as you mentioned previously, uh, SendGrid is known for its culture. You guys are consistently ranked as one of the best workplaces to work at, period. Um, 
if you had to start a new company and you had to build culture from the ground up, uh, what would your approach be? I think the approach is really about kind of defining what the the culture is. Uh, with SendGrid, we talk about the four H's, humble, hungry, happy, and honest. And it's really about kind of instilling that in people. It's keeping it short. Uh, we tried at first to do like 13 piece points for it. And I mean, no one could remember even two of them. You get that much. It's too, it's way too much. Keeping it simple and keeping it something where people can, can apply it to themselves. Well, this is what it is. Honest H, I'm, I'm talking about this, right? Uh, things where people invoke the, the cultural mantra and keep it in mind. And just always when you're, when you're interviewing, when you're uh, talking about people and performance reviews, all those things, just keeping those cultural uh, objectives in mind is, uh, is key to, to making sure that it sticks. And when you guys hired Jim Franklin, uh, he came in as a CEO, he brought this concept of 4Hs from his previous company. So uh, the concept is to essentially hire people that are happy, honest, humble, and hungry. Um, do you feel like that this concept of 4Hs could apply to pretty much most companies out there? Or was there, was there anything about SendGrid that made this concept apply to you guys uh, so well? I think that it, uh, in a lot of ways, embodied us founders and the, the people that we'd been hiring. Um, obviously, the, the founders help a lot to driving the culture. You're going to hire the type of people that you want to work with. And so it would be very tough for some place that had a win at all costs to uh, to go and say, well, we're going to be 4-H now. <laughs> it's it's something that you, that you have to, to necessarily embody. And. Uh, and then I think you can can kind of lead the lead the charge. So in the recent years, we've seen many more startups go remote. And SendGrid now has offices in many different cities and many different countries. Um, how do you maintain culture uh, when you have remote or distributed operations? So one of the things that SendGrid does is they hold a, an annual uh, kickoff. We call it KCO, kick-ass kickoff meeting, where everybody gets together to try and actually mingle and make sure there's at least some connective tissue. Um, when Samir came on, he even added a, uh, a summer version so that it was every six months that people would get together and, and do that. And that way you don't get this just completely separated culture. But even then, you still get where the, the feel of the company is going to be different in each location. And as long as those, those, those locations still adhere to the, the core principles, that's fine. But just you should expect that if you've got 40 people who mainly are together in one area, they're going to have slightly different culture than 40 people who are separated from them. Uh, is there anything that you can do virtually, uh, like besides the, the offline things and meeting uh, a couple times a year? Uh, are there some things that could be done online uh, to main, maintain culture across different offices? Uh, like we would have a, uh, a weekly all-employee meeting to make sure that you at least keep the rest of the people in mind. Otherwise, it's kind of like if you don't have that meeting, you just completely forget about those people if you're not working with them. Uh, you definitely get where, as as managers who do have roles that kind of cross 
offices, you'll be a lot more aware of what's going on. But in the day to day, I'm not sure that the day to day people who don't necessarily interact with the other offices at all get those kinds of um, of results other than at the the weekly all hands. Let's talk a little bit about your exits. Your first exit is an IPO in 2017. You guys raised about 130 million. You opened up at 16 bucks per share, which was above the expected uh, price. And you guys ended up selling more shares than you anticipated. So all around, it was a very, very successful IPO. Uh, but nowadays we see fewer startups go the IPO route. What made you guys want to go public um, rather than, let's say, trying to raise another round? So there was really no no big motivation for raising another round. We had raised a, uh, a Series D the year earlier just because you want to make sure you have money in the bank. And so we had quite a bit of money in the bank and we were profitable, so we weren't burning any of it. So there, there really was no reason for that. The, the IPO versus acquisition, it's just about timing, right? The, uh, at some point, you do want to provide liquidity for your investors and your uh, stockholders. And it was felt that that was a, a good time and opportunity to go and do that. Um, acquisitions, there, there were acquisition offers during the, the IPO process, but none of them were appealing enough. It's like, you know, we think we're going to go and, and do well, which we obviously did. And so it's about kind of that uh, belief in your company and what it's going to do. Uh, can you share with us how the IPO actually went down? So the, um, the IPO itself is kind of a, a boring thing. It's a whole lot of paperwork and months and months and months of management writing reports, making sure everything's good, right? The, the CFO and the, the CEO have to sign on their life and blood that everything is true. Um, and then they go and do the roadshow and find out how many bankers and come back and everything's done. It's like we went to, to New York. The um, Syngrid was nice enough to fly all of the employees who had been there for at least five years out to to new york for the uh for the opening for the ipo and so we had dinner the night before and yancey said just so you guys know the ipo has already happened right we already sold all the shares today everything is good tomorrow is just the opening of trading but the ipo itself that's just kind of a boring already done type of an event the um the actual opening ceremonies part was a lot more fun, being able to get there, ring the bell, be there on the floor, talking to the market makers and understanding how everything works. That was, that was pretty exciting. And for those that are not familiar, could you share how these details of the IPO are actually negotiated? So things like uh, share price, number of shares to sell, these kind of things? Uh, share price is really based on demand, right? When you go out and do the road show, there's a whole lot of... Uh, talking to people, hey, will you buy it this? Will you buy it that? Number of shares, you, you have to have a certain amount of float just to be viable, right? You can't have uh, the situation, I think Twilio might have even been here when they first IPO'd, where there just weren't enough public shares out there. And so it, it creates too much volatility for the stock. Um, why we had the, um, the secondary public offering earlier in 2018 because there just wasn't enough public float for all the demand and it really messes with the uh, with the market and how long did the whole thing take oh gee i mean it was pre 
about a year after it was like, yeah, we should probably go do this before it actually happened. So once everything was said and done, uh, how did you guys celebrate? Uh, or did you guys celebrate at all together? There was a lot of celebrating the, the night before. Um, the night after, most people went home. Uh, I stayed in New York and actually uh, hung out with an old uh, DevRel uh, employee of ours who worked for Twilio. He'd left us to go to Twilio, and so we, uh, we hung out. It's kind of ir- ironic now. <laughs> so a year and a few months after the IPO, which is actually just a few months ago, Twilio has announced that it has reached a definitive agreement to acquire SendGrid for a couple of billion dollars. Um, and some will look at SendGrid and Twilio and see essentially a match made in heaven. You guys both started roughly around the same time. Uh, you guys both have very close ties to Techstars. Uh, you both dominate your own separate fields of communication. And there's just a lot of overlap when it comes to vision and mission and and values. Um, but I'm curious to know, was there ever any sort of healthy competition between the world companies? I would definitely say there was healthy competition for the DevRel employees. As I said, they they stole one of our best big bastards. But uh, there was, I, I think that most of the time we were very friendly to each other. I think that there was a lot of synergy without getting in each other's way. And so I think that, uh, I think that we were pretty much friends all along. At least I felt that way. And was there ever any indicators of an incoming uh, acquisition by Twilio, given the fact that you guys are both in communication and there's just a lot of similarities between both companies? I don't think there was. If there was more about that, I didn't hear about it. But um, it, it certainly was one of, something that made a lot of sense. I, uh, when I heard about it, it was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> of course. Why not? So on the topic of exits, and exits are obviously a very positive and a very sought-after event. Uh, but timing is very important. There's some cases where companies sell too early, which then go on to become uh, very, very big hits. And there's other cases where companies wait too long to sell and they should have taken an earlier offer. Uh, how would you approach timing when it comes to acquisitions or IPOs? Like, is there certain indicators the founders should watch out for um, that may tell them that it's a good or a bad time to sell? Timing is always a hard thing because it's it, it really requires that you know the future, right? There's always those cases where where something bad can happen and go and mess everything up, right? I think every every startup founder has the stories of, oh, we ha- we were so close to a deal on this and then, right? And so it's about, number one, just remembering that something bad can always come along and screw things up. And so it's about your level of comfort of just going it alone, right? If you're striving to build a successful company and you're succeeding at that, then you're kind of in, tr- in control of your own destiny, right? Syngrid didn't sell to Twilio because they had to. It's not like Syngrid was in any kind of dire straits. They sold to, to Twilio because it made sense. And it, it was believed that that was going to provide the best shareholder value. And so it's more about being in a position that if timing goes wrong, it's no big deal. If you're in a position where it's like, oh man, yeah, we we're in deep trouble if we don't get this sold, then uh, it's a different story. So this is a question that I like to ask all of my guests. Founders are told to have an exit strategy. Uh, did you guys have an exit strategy? And if you did, what were some of the companies that you had in your sites? Uh, we'd certainly talked about, well, we could sell to this company, could sell to that company. Um, the the companies kept having to get bigger and bigger as our valuation kept going up. You know, it went from, well, we could sell to Return Path, we could sell to 
engine yard we could sell to this and that to it's like well maybe ibm maybe microsoft maybe salesforce um and it really just is about as you as you keep growing getting the that uh that target of who you could sell to has to to keep getting bigger also so my last question to you is related to the future of email some people are speculating that the era of email is coming to an end and this has been influenced by the rise of social media the rise of messengers in your opinion, what is the what does the future of email look like? So I think people confuse how email is used, right? Person to person email is definitely decreasing, right? It's like you sent me an email to set this up, but chances are now you have my contact info, you might send me a text instead. Or if I was actually on social media much, you would use that, right? It's it's not the common communication medium for person to person. But from uh, B to C, I still see it as the the best form of communication for most of the cases that people use, right? I don't want a sales receipt coming through SMS to me. I'm not going to get it as an in-app notification. I certainly don't want it sent to my Facebook page, right? And so while there are sections of email that are definitely decreasing email as a whole, from the B2C standpoint, is increasing and is still very, very valuable and very viable. So as we're getting ready to wrap up here, Tim, uh, tell us about what you have going on in your life now and if you have any plans to start another company in the future. Yeah, so life is is pretty good. Other than playing Fallout 6 a lot, I, uh, 76, I spend a lot of time with my kids and uh, my wife trying to do more of the, the family thing. Um, I keep extremely busy. I do a lot of mentoring for uh, other people who are in the startup scene and for the university around here for some of their uh, entrepreneurship programs. Uh, I do have another company that I'm working on uh, starting up. I've got another co-founder working with me on it. It's um, not quite ready for me to to chat about it here, but you know, you got to do something to to keep the mind busy. Yeah. And I think it was a very well-deserved break for you. Uh, Tim, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. It was a pleasure to have you on. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe and share it with your friends. Also tag a founder you'd like to see on the show. This podcast is brought to you by Startup Soft. To learn more, visit startupsoft.org.